If you've got a Bible, why don't you get it out and open up to the book of Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to continue on in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Which, uh, it's not lost on me that this is a very, very short sermon. And we're spending several very, very long sermons uh, trying to understand the short sermon. So at some point, uh, I'd encourage you just to sit down and read it as a sermon. But um, for me, this is incredibly um, important that we move slowly through Jesus' famous teachings here. And my hope is that we would not just um, be inspired by them or agree with them or maybe even learn or glean some new nugget of inspiration or something like that. But I hope that through this journey, we as a church are growing to really know and understand the heart of Christ and his vision for what life looks like in his kingdom, what life looks like according to Jesus' perspective when we order our relationships and our vocation and our finances and the way we steward our bodies and our sexuality and everything about us. Jesus has this vision that all of it would revolve around who he is and what he's doing in the world. And so uh, we're, we're moving through the Sermon on the Mount. So just to catch us up real quick and to make sure we understand sort of the logical flow of the sermon, the first chunk in verses 3 through 12 is this chunk known as the Beatitudes, which means the blessings or the blesseds. And we started by acknowledging that in Jesus' sermon, he begins not by giving commands, but by pronouncing blessings. The very first thing he does is say that God is with you. You are not alone. No matter what it is you're going through, no matter what loss you're grieving or trouble you're navigating, I want you to know this, he says to his followers. You are not alone. You are blessed. I am with you. And then from blessing, he moves on to this conversation about identity. So where we were last week is in the section about salt and light, verses 13 through 16. And so he says, first thing you need to know is that you have a God who blesses you and is with you. Second thing you need to know is who you are. What does it mean to be the blessed people of God? And so we connected Jesus' metaphors of salt and light as identities of his people way back to early in the story where God sets up this covenant with his people saying, I will bless you and make you a blessing. I will give myself to you, pour my life into you, so that through you, my life and blessing can spread to the world. And so we talked about the missional identity of the people of God. The idea that we aren't simply to be a cul-de-sac of God's blessings, but we're to be a highway where his life can flow through us uh, to give life to the world. And so he starts with blessing, and then he starts with this identity. You are salt and light in the world. And then today, in the text that we're going to engage, he moves the conversation on to the question of authority. So before he starts giving a bunch of uh, commands or imperatives, he follows this flow and, and asks the question, who has the right to have say in your life? Who are you going to listen to or who is it that's going to determine uh, what you deem to be right, wrong, good, bad, up, down, and so forth? How are you going to make those decisions? about what your life is going to be about, and, and specifically in the context of this uh, sermon that he gave, this kind of communal, familial, shared sense of 
how are you guys together going to decide who has authority or final say in your life? And so uh, in, in the section that Pat read for us, verses 17 through 20, Jesus starts this conversation on authority by talking about the scriptures. And so this morning, what we're going to do is basically ask the question, what does Jesus think about the Bible? And how can we, as Jesus followers, align our thinking and ultimately our living in accordance with him? And what he thinks about the Bible, ultimately, I would think would be obvious, whatever Jesus thinks about the Bible is what Jesus' followers should think about the Bible. And the way that he interacts and engages with the Scripture should be the way that we interact and engage with the Scripture as well. And so as Christians, and specifically here as Antioch, as an expression of the historic Christian church, we understand that ultimately our authority in terms of how we know what God is calling us to believe and to be about is contained in this book we call the Bible. That for this is really central to what it means to be part of the Christian faith, is that we consider the scriptures to be authoritative. And so on one hand, Scriptures are often a narrative, a story, uh, poetry, all these things that kind of inform our, 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 our vision of God, and they kind of call us into a story in which we understand our lives and understand our world. And so the Bible isn't a big, long list of rules, and sometimes we sort of think about it that way. Um, but for the, for the scriptures to be authoritative in our lives means that we understand they aren't just for information or inspiration, but they all also are also for our instruction. That the way we see ourselves and the way we live our lives should be instructed um, by the scriptures. And so as Christians, and as this church specifically, we are dedicated, we are committed to being obedient and submissive to the teachings of the Bible. We want to order our life, our theology, our community, our mission around the, what the Bible calls us to um, in its instructives and in its imperatives. Now, the problem is, for any of us that have any experience with the Bible, is it seems like there's some parts that we can read that command or that verse and it applies directly to our lives today in Bend, Oregon in 2018. But then it seems like there's other parts that feel like I'm not really sure if I still have to obey that or submit to that. So for example, I grew up in a conservative Christian environment and uh, when I turned 18, um, I decided that an important thing in my life would be to start getting tattoos. And as a young Christian kid, there were people around me that said, you can't get tattoos, the Bible forbids it. How many of you guys have tattoos? Sinners. We're all sinners. <laughs> and more than one person took me to Leviticus 19.28, which reads, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Book closed. Christians can't get tattoos, it says it in the Bible. And as a Christian kid, and, and any of us who are going, well, that does seem pretty clear. I'm not sure what getting marks for the dead is. Apparently that was something that happened back in the day. But putting tattoo marks on yourself, it seems like the Bible prohibits that. 
And so some, some people around me would, would bring that verse and say, so you shouldn't get your... T- <laughs> um, this is my first one. You can't really see it. It says mom. <laughs> and uh, this is how I navigated this was by going, my mom can't complain about that. Um, so you're welcome. I wasn't planning on doing that. I won't show you my others. But... Um, when people wanted to know, well, how, how can you justify being a Christian with a tattoo? Well, I'd go, well, you read me Leviticus 19.28. What, what does the verse before that say? Have you read Leviticus 19.27? Which says, don't cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. But closed. <laughs> and there's all these other ones that are like, don't wear garments made of fixed, mixed fabric. So if it's like a 50-50 blend, you're done. <laughs> and all these ones that condemn shellfish and all this kind of stuff. And so I, at a very young age, was kind of like, it seems like um, there's certain parts of the Bible that are clear and definitive and we just need to obey what it says. But it seems like there's these other parts that... I. Do we just pick and choose the ones that seem like they apply to us? And so uh, let's do a little pop quiz just to kind of help. If you're not confused, I want to get you a little bit more confused. So I want to share with you 12 quotes from the scriptures straight out of the Bible. And I won't have you raise your hands or vote or anything, but I want you to think about if you come across this reading in the Bible, um, is this authoritative in the sense that I should obey it? at face value, that this is something God wants me to do, or is this something that in one way or another uh, isn't authoritative at face value, that it it has to be wrestled with or interpreted or contextualized to this place in the bigger story. So first one from Genesis 12, God says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Now, if you read that in Genesis 12 and go, well, I have to obey the Bible, then um, apparently that's something that you should do because that's what God said we should do. Is that uh, something that applies today or something that maybe God was saying to a certain person at a certain time in a certain story? This is God speaking to Abraham. Next one. We'll go kind of quickly. Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That was Jesus standing on the mountaintop before he ascends and commissioning his original group of disciples and saying, here's what I want you to go do. Now we'd have to ask ourselves, is that something he was just telling those original 11 or is that something that applies to all of us who consider ourselves disciples today? Good question. Next one. I'm not going to answer these for you. Deuteronomy 22, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together, which means some of you have already sinned this morning, because I know this is what you do on Sundays, and I'm so ashamed for you. It's in the Bible. It is the Word of God. What do we do with that? Next one. Romans 14, 21, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Again, some of you have sinned this morning and eaten meat. So um, that's the New Testament. This is Paul writing authoritatively to an early community of Christians. And he speaks this pretty strongly. Next verse. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. 
That's in the Bible. And apparently that's something we should do. Okay, next one. Hope you get what I'm, I'm messing with you. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. Pretty clear. Leviticus 24. Next one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now this one's a little tricky because we understand this as Jesus giving the great command. But notice it comes from Deuteronomy. It comes from one of the first five books of the Old Testament. And usually that's a little indicator that if it's from like Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, then we have to do something else with it. But for this one, for whatever reason, that sounds like something worth holding on to. Okay, next one. 1 Corinthians 7, are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. <laughs> that is in the Bible, that is in the New Testament. And it seems pretty straightforward. Do not tinder. Next one. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Is that just for husbands back then or is that for husbands today? Next one. On the Sabbath day, make an offering of two lambs a year old without defect. Uh, did anybody do this yesterday? <laughs> you should have. <laughs> and finally, nope, not finally, sorry. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. This is from Matthew, this is from Jesus. In fact, he says in Matthew 18, but he says it later on in in chapter 5 as well. This is Sermon on the Mount. Gouge it out and throw it away. Right next. A new command I give you, love one another. Okay? For, that, for many of us, that will resonate. as like, that seems like it doesn't expire. So now you're confused, right? That's, that's the hope. Um, you get this big, fat Bible, and you're told that to be a Christian is to see the Bible as authoritative and instructive, and that to live as part of the Christian community is to order our lives in obedient, loving submission around what the Bible teaches. And there's lots of places where it feels really straightforward. Love one another, love your wife, love God. All those things feel like, yeah, that feels like something God wants us to keep doing. But then you get all these, some really obscure commands about animal sacrifice and that sort of thing. And then you get some language that feels like, that might not be meant to be interpreted literally. Like maybe the authors of the scripture are using some sort of metaphorical or symbolic language or, or hyperbole even or something like that. And so what I, what I want to do is simply to call us into the reality that to live according to uh, the authority of scriptures and in submission to it isn't as simple as we think it might be. It's simple in terms of determination that uh, I want to be faithful and obedient to what God has revealed through the scriptures, but the reality is that from the very beginning of this book, there has been controversy, debate, disagreement, different theories, different interpretations on what does the Bible mean and what does it mean for us to live it out. And this is essentially the world that Jesus lived in as a Jewish rabbi. This is what he did. This is what rabbis would do. They would constantly sit around and say, here's this passage of scripture that's confusing and complicated and was written at one time in one place to one set of people. So what does that mean for us today? This is 
constantly what we have in Jesus. And really, this is what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. He is taking this ancient Hebrew narrative and this set of authoritative documents that we know as the Old Testament at that time, and he's wrestling with them as a rabbi with his disciples. And he's trying to impart his vision, his view, his understanding of what the scriptures are all about. Okay, so this is something that's been going on for a very long time. So in verse 17, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And so for first century Jews, the people that Jesus primarily spent his prophets were basically the way they referred to, again, what we call the Old Testament. And for Jewish people, the Old Testament would have been their source of authority. They lived in an authoritarian society, oftentimes with a king or a queen or some kind of ruler, and whatever that ruler said is how it was. And so the Hebrew people had this source of authority from God in the scriptures, and therefore they took the Bible, what, what we call the Old Testament, very, very seriously. And they didn't each have their own copy like we do. They definitely didn't have it on their phones. There were a, a few copies that would have been sacred and gathered around. And they strived to, to read, to know, to understand, and ultimately to align their lives around what God had said in the scriptures. And so the first century Jews had an incredibly high view of the Bible. And so Jesus shows up, and the first thing he says is that I want to make sure that you know when you hear me talking, I'm not trying to abolish the law and prophets. So apparently Jesus' teachings about the scriptures were so radical and so different and sounded so new and fresh compared to what any other rabbis were saying that some people thought, Whoa, he's doing away with the whole thing. To abolish means to tear down or to destroy or to disregard, to set aside. And the things that Jesus was saying was so different from any other rabbi they've heard. They're like, he must be abolishing the scriptures. And Jesus says, no, you're hearing me wrong. I have not come to abolish the scriptures. And so his hearers were disoriented and confused. Because the way he was talking about the Bible was so different than the way anyone else was talking about it. They're like, well, should we follow Jesus or should we follow the traditional interpretations of the scriptures? And so he goes, no, no, no. Don't abolish the scriptures. Don't disregard the law and prophets. And so kind of the staunch conservative Orthodox Jews in the room are going, yeah, that's our guy. We're not getting rid of the scriptures. Uh, Jesus is simply here not to abolish, but to maintain, but to keep us going, to, to maintain the status quo of how we understand our, our spirituality. But Jesus actually confronts them, too, because he's just like, I'm not here to abolish, but I'm also not here just to maintain. I'm here to fulfill the scriptures. So the crowd is going, well, do we disregard the old, weird parts of the Bible that no longer seem relevant? Um, or do we just kind of conti continue following these things? And Jesus goes, there's actually sort of a third way. And it has to do with fulfillment. He says, I am here to fulfill the scriptures. Very unique, and nobody 
would have ever thought of it this way, but it's a huge claim that he makes. Now, Jesus, if you know his story, he uses this language over and over and over again as he's trying to describe for his followers the significance of his identity, of his life, and of his ministry. So, for example, later on in Matthew's story, verse 20, uh, chapter 26, as we get towards the end of Jesus' life, it reads, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to Peter, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Okay, so as Jesus in the middle of this heated moment where people are cutting people's ears off and that sort of thing, he's doing a Bible study and he's going, no, you don't understand what's going on here. There's a story unfolding before your eyes that has to do somehow with me, he says. In the next verse, it says, In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Okay, so what is Jesus teaching about how he views the scriptures? And specifically, in this case, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And I think what I would argue in summary is that for Jesus, what we call the Old Testament wasn't God's final word to humanity. It was God's gift to his people that was intended to hold them over until the promises they pointed to and the story the scriptures were telling were ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus is saying, so no, you don't just get to wipe it away and say it no longer matters, but you have to understand that the law and the prophets started a story, but they didn't finish it. And so I'm not here to abolish it, and I'm also not here to maintain the status quo. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to bring about the next chapter and ultimately the final chapter of this season, of, uh, of this story between God and his people. So very, very interesting claim, and a huge claim to make, right? Your whole Hebrew library, he says, it was actually about me. It was actually setting the table for me. It was preparing the way for me. So don't get rid of it, but understand what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to draw you to myself and to show you who I really am and what I'm here to do. Okay, move on to verse 18. He says, For truly I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Okay, So to to make things really clear that he's not here to abolish the Old Testament or to maintain the status quo, he says, says, truly I tell you. Okay, This is a definitive Jesus uh, line. In Matthew's gospel, he uses it 30 times alone. Truly, I tell you. 
When Jesus says, truly I tell you, he's saying, I want you to pay special attention to what I'm about to say next because I'm going to drop a bomb. Be prepared to have your mind blown. Truly, I'm about to tell you something that you've never heard before. So this is a big deal. He sets himself up. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, which is a figure of speech meaning forever, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And so Jesus uses this <clears throat> incredibly detailed, specific imagery to say, um, yeah, it's not even like there's whole chunks of the Old Testament that we can disregard or even whole books or whole chapters or whole verses. He's like, you can't even disregard like the tiniest little punctuation mark, the tiny little dot on the I or, or cross of the T. He's going, none of that is disregarded. None of that is destroyed or abolished in my teaching or in my vision for human flourishing. He's saying every single part of the scripture is authoritative, is inspired, and plays its purpose in calling all creation to redemption through Christ. So he goes, don't get rid of any of that, and none of it will disappear until everything is accomplished. Now, what's he talking about there? What story is he calling his hearers into where everything is accomplished? Well, he's basically saying the purpose of the scriptures is to begin this story that eventually is going to come true. So what is the story? What is the thing that Jesus was constantly talking about? If we had to summarize all of his teachings in one phrase, what would that thing be? What was Jesus all about? Well, it was this thing called the kingdom of God. That's everything Jesus was teaching about. What does life look like when it's ordered under God's reign and, and sovereign rule? What does life on earth look like when things are here as they are in heaven? When God is king, when things are as they ought to be, Jesus goes, that's the kingdom of God. And one day it's going to come. One day God's going to bring heaven to earth and restore everything back to himself. But we don't just have to wait for that day. That day has already begun. God's kingdom is breaking in through the person of Jesus. And so to follow the logical flow of Jesus' sermon, we need to understand that for him, the authority of Scripture has to do with the vision and the story of the kingdom of God, which is why then in verses 19 and 20, he starts talking about who's going to be least and greatest in the kingdom. Now again, when you hear kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, don't think heaven like a place we go when we die. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about God's already not yet rule and reign that one day will be complete and true and finalized but has already begun in the person of Jesus. And essentially is what he's saying is that those that are going to thrive under the lordship of Christ, those that are going to flourish in God's kingdom here and now are the one who takes seriously the word of God. And those that are going to miss out, those whose faith is going to be weak and immature, are the ones who don't pay attention to the scriptures. They'll be the least in the kingdom. They'll experience the least amount of God's life. 
They'll experience the least amount of a sense of intimacy and connection to Jesus. They'll experience the least amount of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. They'll experience the least amount of joy and meaning and purpose and adventure and mission. And so the way that we treat the scriptures, if I had to sum up these two verses, is somehow connected in the end to the way we're going to experience God's kingdom. And those who take it seriously and view the scriptures the way Jesus does, he says they'll be the greatest. Not meaning we're going to get big thrones or Ferraris or something like that. Meaning we're going to experience the most of God's life. The greatest sense of his blessing and grace and presence and power. We're going to experience the most joy even when life uh, is, is at its worst. And so... Um, this whole reciprocal relationship says something which we don't fully understand, but how we treat the Bible is going to drastically impact the way we experience the presence of God's kingdom, not just when we die, but here and now. And then finally, in verse 20, he does this whole other bomb. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we know, teachers of the law, Pharisees, were those that took the scriptures most seriously. These were the theologians, the biblical scholars, the, uh, the scriptural doctorates, if you will, that know and understand every little detail and have perspectives and opinions about all of that. And so this would have been an overwhelming thing to Jesus' ragtag crew of disciples where he's saying, here's, here's the Pharisees and their PhDs in, in Torah. And he's going, you actually need to do better than them. You need to be more righteous than them. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's redefining righteousness in a way that nobody saw coming. Because for the Pharisees, righteousness had to do with obeying the letter of the law. Taking all these passages that we would consider obscure from the Old Testament and very carefully checkmarking their life to make sure that they could sign off and feel good about obeying everything that's in the Bible. And Jesus goes, that's actually not what I'm about. And that's not what my vision for living under the authority of the scripture is. So he begins this series then in the rest of chapter 5 of examples where he says, yeah, it's pretty easy in a lot of ways to check these boxes in the Old Testament. But he goes, I'm actually after something else. I'm after your heart. I'm not just trying to get you to modify your behavior so you can feel like you kept all the rules. Jesus goes, I want to transform you from the inside out. So I'm not just going to be paying attention to your actions but I'm going to be paying attention to your heart, to your affections, to your motives, to your thoughts, to your values, to your passions. Not just what you do, but why you do it and where it's coming from and what it means to you. And if you're simply trying to just feel good about being better than all the people that aren't keeping the rules, Jesus goes, that's not what this is about. So for the Pharisees, righteousness had to do with rule-keeping. For Jesus, it has to do with transforming humanity and giving them a new heart. 
And so these six examples, which we won't take the time to go through one by one, but I want you to catch the theme as we try to figure out what does Jesus think about the Bible or how does he understand the Old Testament. First, he starts in verse 21. You've heard it said that uh, people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, so for the Pharisees, they're like, Chuck, haven't murdered anybody. I feel pretty good about that. Jesus goes, yeah, it's not, that's not, that's, it's not as simple as that. Verse 22, if anyone is angry with a brother or sister, he'll be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is, an un, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, so I'll move quickly on this, but Jesus isn't interested in box checking. He's saying, where does murder come from? Well, in a lot of cases, it comes from hatred. It comes from this contempt for other humans. And he's like, so maybe you haven't actually pulled the trigger and killed anybody, but do you realize that murder is a fruit that grows on the tree of hatred? And the tree of hatred has its roots in your heart. And it's exposed any time that you treat another fellow image bearer of God with contempt, with violence, with hatred. He's going, yeah, maybe you haven't pulled the trigger yet, but the roots of that tree are deeply planted within you. So I'm not just content to have you check the box and say, I haven't killed. I want you to pay attention to the reality that that thing is in you. And again, I won't do them all, but the next one, verse 27. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. And anybody who hasn't slept with somebody else's spouse can say, check, haven't done that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? So notice what Jesus is doing. Is he abolishing the Old Testament? Saying, no, nope, doesn't matter, that was... One day, a long time ago, he's not. And, or is Jesus simply maintaining the Old Testament and saying, here's our list of rules? He's not doing either of those. This is his way of fulfilling the scriptures, filling them out, answering, bringing about what they were really intended to create. So he says, where does, where does adultery come from? Well, adultery is the fruit that grows on the tree of lust. And even if you actually haven't hopped in a sack with somebody else, is there lust in your heart? Men, do you find yourself objectifying women? Do you find yourself participating in systems that oppress vulnerable women? Do you find, your way, find yourself looking at women or treating women in a way that dehumanizes them? He's going, yeah, maybe you haven't gotten in bed yet, but that root of lust lives in you. And Jesus is saying, I want to pluck that thing out. I want to transform you even at that level. Not just in modifying your behavior, but actually creating a new person. And he does the same thing on with divorce, with oaths, with <clears throat> revenge, and ultimately with enemy love. Okay, so 
What Jesus is doing here, in addition to giving this kingdom constitution, is teaching his disciples how to see the Bible the way he does. He's helping them understand his lens for interpretation. And so over and over again throughout this sermon, he's going to go, you've heard it said, meaning this is the status quo, what I say to you. And so I don't have a neat, tidy, simple way to tell you, hey, when you come to a difficult passage in the scriptures that you're not sure if it applies to everybody all the time or just one person at one time, here's like three questions you can ask. I'm sure somebody's come up with something like that. But the first thing I would want to say is we run it all through Jesus first. We, we say, how does Jesus interpret and understand the Old Testament? And then we learn from him. What is the heart? What is the root? What is the thing that he's really trying to communicate? And how would we align our lives in transformation? And so like I said at the beginning, this is a question about authority. Who has the right to have say in your life? And for Jesus, he affirms that the scriptures, the entire scripture, is authoritative. And for us, this is troubling and problematic because we have shifted over the last few hundred years from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. Meaning, I don't want anybody to tell me what to believe or how to live. I want to decide that for myself. That's so common and normal to us that we don't even recognize it as it's not the way it's always been. We want to determine right and wrong and good and bad and all that for ourselves. But the reality is to follow Jesus means we are submitting to the authority of the Lord and King of the universe. And there are, if I'm honest, there's parts of the Bible that I wish weren't there. There are things that I can't get the Bible to say, no matter how badly I want to. There are things that the Bible teaches, even things that Jesus himself teaches, that contradict me. And it would be way easier for me to disregard those and just kind of go with the progressive cultural flow of the modern Northwest. Like, that would be nice, but I can't do that because I'm a man under authority. And so what I would say is you don't have to be a follower of Jesus. Many of us have, have chosen to follow him, but you don't have to. You don't have to follow Jesus. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to follow him in this. Scripture can't be set aside. The Bible can't be ignored. That it should be as central to our lives as it was to his. And the reality is that most Christians I know, we tend to treat the Bible like a software agreement. Do you know what I mean? We don't actually read it. We just scroll to the bottom and click agree. And so this isn't Pete guilt-tripping, and uh, we could leave it right here, and everybody would feel so terrible because you never read the Bible. This is us saying, will you receive the invitation of Jesus into the fullness of life in his kingdom? Will you trust him? Will you submit to his authority? And will you allow yourself to be contradicted and conformed by the scriptures? He goes, 
I know it doesn't always go easy, and it's not always what you want, feel like you want at the time, but this is the greatness of life in the kingdom, that my word, that my life would flow into yours through the scriptures. And so again, uh, this isn't about guilt, and I think... I, I would hope you've heard from me before. If the reason you want to go and start reading the Bible now is so that you don't have to feel guilty anymore, you're doing it wrong, right? And so I want to, I've done this before, but I want to once more say, you are forgiven of all of your missed quiet times. You really are. God's not mad at you. You don't have to fake it. You're forgiven. This isn't coming from a place of guilt or pharisaical adherence to a set of laws. This is simply me trying to say, do you hear the invitation of Jesus into the life that he made you for? And so as we come to the table this morning, we come just like the scriptures are a means of grace by which God gives life, so we believe are the bread and the cup. A means of grace, a place where he's promised to meet us and give himself to us and, and, and pour his life into ours in a powerful and a very real way. And so I want to invite you to come and to commune with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father, we are so grateful for the gift that the scriptures are to us. And even though they at times feel complicated, there's times that we don't understand what we're reading or we do and we don't like it. Um, what a gift we have that you have taken it upon yourself to make yourself known in your world through this incredible, wonderful book. And so our heart as we begin this journey, Lord God, is that you would give us the faith that Jesus has in the authority, the inspiration, the brilliance, and the beauty of your scriptures. And I pray that we would take it seriously enough to wrestle and to allow you, by your spirit, to bring about transformation of our hearts, not just modification of our behaviors. And we pray that as we, by faith and obedience, follow you in this journey, that you truly would call us into great life in the kingdom, a life full of your blessing and a life launched onto your mission to make all things new. So we submit to your word, we celebrate your presence, and we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the love to live in loving submission to you. In Jesus' name.